Hello, and welcome to the Road Not Taken podcast. Today on the show, we'll be talking about the Democratic debates, uh, the general state of the Democratic Party, and the contender's path moving forward to getting the Democratic nomination. Today on the show, we have Jared Altilio, who's appeared before as our political correspondent, uh, and he'll be breaking down um, just about everything you need to know about the Democratic Party in 2019. So, Jarrett, you're live. If you have anything you want to say to the audience, uh, now's the time. Nothing in particular. Just gra- glad to be back on the show. All right. So, uh, I believe it was about a week ago. It might have been a little bit, a little bit more than that. Um, the Democrats had their most recent round of debates. Uh, they knocked out a couple, uh, a couple people based on funding and uh, and you know polling in different polls across the country. Uh, you had to reach a certain polling number and have a certain amount of individual voters. Um, and besides that, uh, Kirsten Gillibrand and then uh, most recently Bill de Blasio have dropped out of the race along with John Hickenlooper. Um, so they were able to narrow down the debate field to, I believe, 10 candidates. Uh, so I was wondering what your thoughts were about, uh, about the debate, maybe some people who stood out to you, some winners, losers, uh, if you thought anybody had one really great moment, uh, some good policy prescriptions. Um, and uh, overall, generally, uh, do you think anything substantially changed as a result of this last debate? Well, one thing is for sure, I feel like there's still way too many people who haven't gotten the hint because the next round of debates actually have more candidates in them again. So even though we have narrowed the field a little bit, it's still oddly large. But um, I think as we get to January, February, when Iowa actually happens, some of these campaigns won't even be able to keep going if whether or not they want to, they're just going to run out of money. Just, you know, I think... Like I've mentioned to you before, you know, people who are governors like Jay Inslee and John Hickenlooper and senators like Kirsten Gillibrand, like the fact that they hadn't been able to outlast some of the guys that are still in the race is beyond me. But as for the 10 who did make the stage, I think anyone who had watched the two previous debates probably didn't learn much uh, in terms of who came out on top and who came out not on top, uh, who did well, who didn't. If it was your first debate, though, I guess you would probably come away knowing why, whether you like it or not, knowing why the three who are on top of the field are on top of the field. And I don't think you really got that much from anyone else. So for me and you who watched them all, you know, I feel like some of the lower tier candidates that had standout moments, obviously we had Beto O'Rourke talking about the, uh, you know, gun buyback program that he wants to put into place. Hell yes. We're going to take your AR-15. Exactly. Um, that was probably one of the biggest, if not the biggest lines that we heard in all three debates, because it's the one that, you know, how many lines from the first debate do you remember? There were so few. We obviously remember Harris's takedown of Biden, but there's no real line that stuck with us. That one will. So in that way, he stood out. Um, and I think, you know, Senator Booker and Mayor Buttigieg also had good performances, but nobody had a performance, I think, that really would propel them further in the polls or pull them back in the polls. Yeah, and I'd, I'd actually, uh, let's, so let's transition. So uh, based on, on what you just said, it didn't seem as though at least the major front runners, nobody separated themselves. Um, and, you know, admittedly, the debate stage isn't always the best place to do that, just given the time constraints, the amount of candidates. Uh, it's not really a place where you can detail policy proposals. And I think that when we saw somebody actually try to detail a policy proposal, namely Joe Biden, uh, he immediately got got taken down by uh, uh, Julian Castro, 
uh, which I think was probably the most savage moment of the debate, where he for whom <laughs> he implicitly and I think some would say explicitly accused Biden of being senile and uh, being unable to remember what he'd said two minutes ago about the details um, of his I believe, was it healthcare I think I think it was a healthcare plan. Yeah, well, what's most troubling about that is regardless of how it came across on TV, uh, Castro actually ended up being incorrect about what he was alleging Joe Biden had said. So right. the fact check didn't bear, bode well for him either. Right. And uh, and I think uh, you know, let's let's rather than talk about um, about Castro, uh, just given that I think he's probably better suited to positioning himself for a vice president presidential spot with one of the contenders. Which some could argue he's doing. By uh, oh, I th- I, doing this I agree. Dog mode and, well, uh, yeah. I think you actually you predicted. I forget. I think this was on the podcast. It was either on the podcast or sometime that we were just talking about it. But you predicted like before the race, like just when the race was starting out, that he was going to be someone who who could be angling for a VP, uh, a VP slot behind one of the major contenders. Um, oh, definitely. Because I had I'd said that as early as 2016. Right. I thought he could. You gave me the idea. Maybe yeah. would appear. I think he would have made more sense than Booker, who was also on the short list, for example. Right, right. And uh, so let's take that moment to talk about Joe Biden. So I, I think, and I, I actually, uh, on my personal Facebook page, like threw out some debate grades for the Democrat uh, Democratic candidates. Um, and I believe I gave Joe Biden, uh, it was either a C or a C plus, but it was, it was about an A for the first half an hour because he was really energetic. He came out guns blazing. Uh, he was talking, you know, he challenged Elizabeth Warren directly. Uh, he was getting into spats with Bernie Sanders. He was definitely trying to position himself as the voice of common sense because uh, he was talking about, you know, how we're going to pay for these plans, uh, how certain things would be unconstitutional. And then I think as the debate went on and, you know, these are like about three hour debates, so it, it's, you know, very taxing. But he, he really, I think he, he got quieter as the debate went on. Uh, he wasn't as as vivacious and extroverted in his uh, in his mannerisms, he wasn't like interrupting to you know take the stage away from another candidate. Um, so I think he definitely ran out of steam as the debate went on. Um, but I was wondering what you thought about his performance overall in this debate. Yeah, overall, I think I agree with that assessment because you know I think one thing that we've seen from him in his campaign, marked by these three debates, is that with each one, his performance has been such that. He's much more willing to engage with the other candidates on stage rather than ignore them because now he's under attack he's by slipping, one or more of them. Slipping in, in the debate. polls, yeah. Um, so he's become more gloves off than he was at the beginning. And it seems like when he's in those exchanges now, he seems to be faring well, usually winning them. And if he doesn't, it doesn't really hurt him in the polls. Whereas in the first debate, you know, he saw he got completely blindsided, blindsided by Kamala Harris. So. Right. We haven't really seen that happen again, despite many of them trying to do so. It usually backfires on them, like in Castro's case, or he just sort of brushes it off. But the thing about it is, like you said at the very beginning, he was very engaged. And it seems like we begin each debate with healthcare. And I, like I said at the beginning, I don't think that we're really learning that much more. As you mentioned, the debate sort of format leads to that. But, you know, one thing is troubling for the way that the Democratic primary is going, I guess you could say, if you care about the electability argument that mm-hmm. a lot of people use when they talk about Joe Biden or right. Harris or Booker versus, you know, Warren or Sanders. Um, you know, you really, I think a poll just this week had came out suggesting that the American public and Democrats even 
um, don't like the idea of not having the option to retain their private insurance, right. which some of the candidates are saying they would openly, you know, that there, that there would be no private insurance because everyone would be covered by the government program. And so even among Democrats, and it's, it's I don't think that because the debates are all about the rhetoric and not about the policy, I'm not sure that that poll result is representative of what the party may actually feel, but it is telling us that the messaging of, you know, that some of the more conservative Democrat candidates are using, some of that rhetoric is working, I think, because people in the Democratic Party don't like to hear that the government's going to take away an option from them, right? even and, if it is a bad option. And, um, and I think what's interesting, and I, and I don't want to sound like, you know, a Fox News anchor, because I know that this is a, a common theme among uh, non-liberals, but there is a concern that while positioning yourself as as a sane option to Donald Trump and to perhaps somebody like Bernie Sanders would be the best strategy to win the general electorate over in the Democratic primaries the loudest voices are the ones furthest to the left generally speaking and I don't know you know how the polling bears that out I mean Joe Biden is still you know like leading in the polls uh, more moderate candidates you know like Kamala Harris still have uh, a pretty strong base of support um, but I think that a lot of the candidates are worried about appealing to the very far left portion of the base. So they, they target their rhetoric and their campaign strategy strategy to that. And when people who, you know, make up the bulk of the moderate Democratic base and, you know, the independents or the, you know, perhaps even uh, blue blood Republicans that are disillusioned with Trump, uh, watch these debates or hear the sound, you know, the sound bites the next day. Uh, they're they're disturbed by some of the very progressive rhetoric that you know they they might disagree with, uh, so I, I think that's that's the issue. Um, just given that you know, I mean, you can just call Bernie Sanders a socialist, and a lot of people are are going to be scared of that term. Uh, right. Joe Biden, you know, while he seems to be one of the least favorite candidates of the voices that are that are speaking the loudest in the party, when you hear the media talk about him. Or when you hear people on you know Twitter or on various left-leaning news sites, um, they they don't like Joe Biden. Like it's, it seems like Warren or Sanders or even though you know Buttigieg or Booker or Harris, those are the picks that they want. But those might be the people that are you know most like yeah. And again, I, I don't want to be you know suck it up and vote for you know Satan's lieutenant so you don't get Satan because I don't like that that way of thinking. Um, but I think that is definitely a concern. Uh, so yeah, you, yeah, but the only thing about it is, while I think that concern makes sense, I don't think that I I could even name a safer candidate in history than Hillary Clinton true. versus a very true. insane candidate. Very so true. a lot of people to see, even though it does make sense that, you know, hey, Joe Biden is a moderating voice, he's someone that the country has seen before and is comfortable with and trust that he's not going to take the country in either direction to extreme, you know, that. Hillary Clinton offered the same message, so right. And I, I think do see I think both ways on on people's concerns of that. But I think that in that case, when it's an even draw, the best thing the party can do is pick who it believes to be the honest to God best candidate, because you know this is going to be a close election between two very passionate sides. So whoever can appeal to the most Democratic voters should be the nominee. And I think the way the media is kind of shying away from Joe Biden is because you know there's. When they can publish an article or, or run a news story about how 
Sanders or Warren has overtaken Biden, it creates excitement and drama. Right. Whereas, you know, the same front runner, he's been the front runner since he joined the race, which was in what, April. Mm-hmm. So to have the same front runner for the better part of the summer and the fall isn't very good, uh, you know, for their business model. But, right. you know, the fact remains is we're still in the, we're not in the nitty gritty yet of the early states and stuff. So we can't really see if his lead will hold, but at the same time, you know, it's this narrative that he's falling or that he doesn't stand a chance just doesn't bear up when you look at what the candidates have in terms of resources. And he's going to be, whether or not he wins, he's going to be in the nom. There's no doubt. You know, Cory Booker is saying if he doesn't get almost $2 million by October, his campaign's going to be in financial trouble. Joe Biden's not going to have that problem. Right. Warren, Sanders, they're not going to have that problem. So, like, they're in that very elite tier because regardless of whether or not they win, you know they're going to be around through the, the you know, through Super Tuesday and probably beyond. The And, and I think that's – they're basically the, like, Trump, Cruz, Rubio of – last year's Republican nomination where they're going to be around to the, to right. the bitter end. Maybe, there might be a John Kasich, Kasich hanging around. Yeah. Arena in there where we let Pete or Corey or Amy Klobuchar stick or around. Andrew Yang. Well, we'll get to Yang that, in a minute. No, uh, see, we've mentioned everybody but Andrew Yang. <laughs> I, and I, 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 we will get to him in a minute because I, I, I share, and I, I, he hasn't sold me on voting for him. Uh, I honestly don't really know. I don't know at this point. I haven't picked anybody yet. Um, but he, he holds a special place in my heart. But we'll get to him. I, I, I did want to actually point out one more thing about Joe Biden. Uh, and this is something I've consumed so much political content over the last, like, you know, four months. I can't actually remember where I read this. But um, but there, a very good point was raised that Joe Biden has been branding himself as, like, I was Obama's friend. Like, if you vote for me, you're voting for the Obama administration. Who won after Obama left office, who were the people that swung? It was tr- Trump. Trump swung people who had voted for Obama in the last election that didn't want Hillary Clinton, who positioned herself as that sort of, I, I'm not going to be, uh, you know, like afforded. Like she, she basically, because Bernie Sanders was running as the, I'm going to change the Democratic Party. Hillary Clinton wasn't saying she was Obama, but she was much more in that line. And I think that Joe Biden is doing the same thing, and he might be playing into the same problem, where the people that didn't like Obama that ended up voting for Trump are going to look at Biden saying he's just like Obama and say, we we voted for Trump to get rid of that kind of administration. Why would we just vote for you now? So I'm not sure you know, how secure that theory is, but it's something that I think is worth considering. At least uh, it's, it's something that the DNC should be thinking about as, as the election progresses. He, there are a lot of similarities, but the thing is, if he follows the Hillary strategy through November, that's bad, right? Right. But if he follows it through June, that's good. She became the nominee. True. So I think in one way his campaign is – like it wouldn't be a terrible thing if his campaign were modeled. After, if he does as well in Iowa as Hillary did, which he won't, like, you know, that would be a tremendous success for his campaign. So, you know, she won – and outside of New Hampshire, she won the next slate of states. Um, so if he could follow her primary footsteps, they'd be very happy about that. But then, of course, it's an open question of how that fares in the general election. Right. Uh, so I, I, let's switch to uh, to a couple, I guess, the two standard bearers for the Progressive Party. Um, you know, Sanders, Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. Um, and I want to kind of tackle them separately just because I think as similar as some might portray them out to be, I think that their, their, candid, their campaigns— 
are, are in different places right now. It seems as though Bernie Sanders is just holding his block. Like, he's had his base. He's keeping his base. He's not... He's not going to move. Elizabeth Warren, on the other hand, I think is gaining a lot of steam. And I think that I, I don't, it may be too early to tell, but I know that uh, a couple polls that just came out over the last couple of days have her pulling even with Joe Biden. Um, and it's very interesting. Uh, her campaign right now, it, it's I think it's already surpassed its floor. And it actually, it has a very, very high ceiling. I think a ceiling that's higher than either Sanders or Biden. Uh, so I was wondering what you think about her campaign. Um, I, I guess, you know, my thoughts about her performance, the debate, she didn't really do any, she didn't implode, which is really what she needed at this point. I'm not sure she had the best night, but, uh, but moving forward, what do you think about Warren's candidacy? As for the debate, I think she had a similar look to Biden where they were very engaged at the beginning and both performed, I think, strongly enough to call it even, you know, nobody really was deemed the winner over the other in their first showdown as the media was portraying it um you know but over the night she got more quiet and more faded and we saw more of those middle tier candidates like Beto get their lines in um and I think that they're fine with that because they know that the front runners and if I think they all recognize on stage how they come out of each interaction like if they they look good if if it didn't so I feel like you know as long as they're all coasting together the top three they're not they don't feel too incentivized to try to break out of that norm. But for Bernie, I mean, <clears throat> you said he it's sort of, yeah, he's just holding that core that he has, and it's not really moving upward or downward in relative to the other candidates. It's just sort of, do you ever notice how, like, you still see so many Bernie 2016 bumper stickers? Mm-hmm. But, like, nobody has bothered to upgrade to, like, you know, there are Bernie 2020 bumper stickers. The Bernie know? bros have just gotten four That's years older, basically. What his polling is. It's the same sort of thing. It's like he has his core that's never going to move as long as he's in the race. And then he has the people who have, you know, that he's earned from outside his is based. But I think Warren's campaign has been extremely successful in painting herself as a viable uh, a viable alternative to even Joe Biden, because at the beginning, everybody opined that if people started to break away from Joe Biden, it would have to be to Buttigieg or to Harris or to Booker uh, or to Beto. It couldn't possibly be to Sanders or Warren or any of these, you know, the, the more liberal people. But she's proven that wrong. And even though Bernie still does well as like a second choice among Biden voters, I think the second choice Biden voters are really just picking the next most popular candidates. But I think Elizabeth Warren, like you said, has been impressive mostly because she has shown the ceiling is quite high because she can build that coalition in the Democratic Party if this continues anyway, because she is appealing to Biden supporters because she hasn't made him an enemy. And she is obviously appealing to the more progressive voters because they obviously prefer her to Joe Biden. Right. So she's definitely done, and her campaign has done a good job of showing that, especially in Iowa, like you mentioned, the Seltzer poll had her up two points on Joe Biden, which statistically means absolutely nothing. But the, the, you know, the headline, the narrative, was very important for her campaign. Another one came out in Iowa today, actually, I saw this afternoon, where it's Biden 25, Warren 23. So again, you know, Warren's not on top, but it's the same marginal difference. So I think it is safe to say that though we're still months from Iowa, she's definitely pulled even 
with Biden there, so which is interesting because no one else has to this point. I have two brief questions about Warren before we move on from her. The first one is, and I guess this applies to all the top three, because I don't think we really need to talk about Bernie. I think he's like we already know what we have in him, that nothing's really changed since the last time that we talked about it. Um, if they're all, if they all end up just pulling at this, is this just we go to Iowa, we go to New Hampshire, we just see how the votes start rolling in, and then we wait for the general population to like decide which one of these three people like they're all pulling around twenty percent. So is this we're just not going to see a dramatic shift? Uh, they'll run through the states, get accumulating delegates and votes as the primary process unfolds. And then towards the very end, the end game, uh, that's when we'll see somebody drop out or endorse another candidate. Um, or do you see some seismic shift coming? Well, for sure, the candidates who can make their resources, obviously like the top three are not going to have an issue making the resources stretch through the states. Any of the other ones that are in the middle tier, uh, as, as far as I last knew, Judge and... Harris were doing pretty well in their fundraising, so even if they're lower in the polls relative to the other candidates, it seems like they're not struggling to stay in the race. The they have way the pipeline they need, right? The support system. Um, yeah, they're 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 doing just fine in their fundraising. Yeah. So, for certain, the way that I view it is, I think those people who fall in those categories will definitely want to be on the ballot in early states and see how they. How could you not? Right, as long as you can do it. Right. Why wouldn't you want to see where you finish in Iowa? Right. So. The thing about it is it's going to be interesting now that there's more than two candidates that we really had vying for it last time. It's less a matter of, you know, a horse race between two people and who is actually who's organ who's built the best organization on the ground of all these people who we've talked so much about. And even though I feel like Iowa, if it were today, would be very close and any one of those top three would have a reasonable chance of winning, though I think it'd be Biden or Warren. There are candidates that we haven't even heard about having good field operations in Iowa, but that do. And so if that is, let's say, Pete Buttigieg, and he comes in third place, you know, even if it's eight, nine, ten points behind whoever wins, that is a propel. That's a propelling of his campaign because he's fifth, sixth right now. So even a surprise second place or third place or maybe fourth place finish is enough to re-energize some of these campaigns. And on similarly, if someone like Sanders, who you'd expect to come in second or third, actually comes in fifth or something, you know, then that's the opposite effect. There have been a lot of people who, most of the time, the Republican who wins Iowa does not win the nomination. It's more predictive, I think, for Democrats. I seem but, to remember Rick Santorum being yes. somewhat competitive in that state, and uh, he, he won it by like twelve votes. I think we're agreeing. I don't know. I but yeah, Mitt I forget. Romney, Mitt Romney had gotten. It didn't matter because Mitt Romney had gotten the positive coverage that night for having either won it or coming close to won it. And Mitt Romney was sort of like the Joe Biden of the Republican field at that right, time. Right. Right. So. And, and the other question I, I have is it, it seems as though in all of these head-to-head polls, because these are becoming a thing, and I think that's just par- partly due to the fact that the Democratic – a lot of the Democrats are – like they, they just want somebody who can beat Trump. Um, you, mean, you mean head-to-head polls? Head-to-head head polls, exactly. A Democrat with Donald Trump. Yes, and I, I don't know how much that's- stock to put into those just because it seems kind of dumb to be bringing them up now. It's like – because the candidates are basically just saying, hey, look, I can beat Trump, see, so here's a poll. 
we don't know yeah, how much I'm that not, really I'm means. I'm not interested in any national head-to-head poll. Right okay. Now. Yeah, I was it's, wondering about that. It's fun to see that they're all beating up on him in, in Michigan by double digits, but like, I'm not interested in actually, you know, like taking any actual information from polls like that. It's not that the polls are incorrect. I, I trust that you know Trump is probably very much behind in these head-to-head polls, but his own campaign's polls show that. But it it doesn't mean anything in the end. You know what national polls say here in September of the year before. If you went back and looked at what they said in you know all these other years, um, they're not predictive at all. So it's way too early for a national head-to-head poll to mean anything. Sure. And uh, I guess, so I, I want to talk a little bit about Andrew Yang, but I'll bring a lump in with him uh, some, at least initially, because uh, I want to, I have a couple questions, or I guess one specifically about him. But uh, these mid-tier candidates, what's the deal with them? Like, I, I, if we have, so I, I know that, you know, you'll hear in the NFL, there's this thing called the hot seat, which is basically if a, if a football team isn't doing well, how, how close the coach of the team is to being fired. Um, I mean, they do that actually now that I think about it in probably every sport. Uh, but for some reason, the NFL just came to mind. But uh, for these candidates, f- how close are they to dropping out of the race? I mean, we recently saw Bill de Blasio drop out, but he wasn't really a contender. He hadn't gotten national exposure the way that somebody like Amy Klobuchar or you know, even a Beto, uh, a Beto had, 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 has done so far. Uh, so I was wondering, who, who do you think might have some staying power? Uh, and for our purposes, we'll put the top three, the big three off limits. If you want to talk about Harris and Buttigieg, I kind of consider them like somewhere like they're kind of like super powered mid-tier candidates just because like, you know, they're you know, a bit ahead of the Yangs, the the Bookers, the Castros. Um, but who do you think might have some staying power in, in the race, at least for the next few months? Outside of those top five? Outside of the top five, yeah. Well, First of all, I'd also caveat that by staying power, I don't I don't mean staying with a chance of winning. Right, rather, right, right. You know, staying in general. Floating, keeping your head above water. Yes. Of the ones that are currently on stage, because as you can tell, you know, we've already, we're only talking about half of what's left on the debate stage. So obviously, if you didn't make the debate stage, and I would say that's still true for Tom Steyer and Tulsi Gabbard. If you weren't on the last debate stage, I don't think you're going to be the nominee. Um, but I think on the last time, on the last debate, we had on either side of the stage, Klobuchar and Castro. Um, I'm not really sure that either of them are going to have, let's, let's put it this way. I'm not sure that they're going to do it, but suppose after October, they make the debate requirements even more stringent. I don't think Castro would make the stage. I don't think Klobuchar would make the stage. Um, Beto and Booker, if it were the poll were conducted today, they might. But you know, if this we're talking December, they might not either. So if the debate stage is down to those five anyway, um, you know, I don't think anyone else has a whole lot of staying power left unless they're able to change course. Um, and like I said, by staying power, I just mean the ability to stay in the race. Because look, there's still Michael Bennett and John Delaney and Tim Ryan are still in this race. Nobody's paying any attention to them because we've all agreed that they're never going to be on the debate stage again. So that right. the same would happen for and, and Marianne Williamson. And and right, we we talked about Marianne Williamson 
more. We searched her name on Google more than we did any other candidate for the first two debates, and now we've forgotten that she exists again. But Andrew Yang, I didn't mention. Maybe you noticed. <laughs> I feel like out of the bunch that isn't the top five, I would say he does because he's the only other one who has – and everyone sort of put him and Williamson – as you know, the the, the quote unquote fringe outsider, you know, no prior prior political experience candidates, sort of like what Ben Carson and Carly Fiorina, you know, were to the last one. They each sure. did succeed at certain points, and then they ultimately fell. But they got interest because Andrew Yang has proved himself to actually be, you know, even though some might still consider him like a fringe candidate, I would consider him a fringe candidate in that I don't think he has a realistic path to being the nominee. But if your definition of fringe candidate is, you know, like someone who's not going to be on the debate stage, I wouldn't put him in that category, at least not yet, because he's proven that he has broken out now more than just that. Um, he's not only on the debate stage, but in most of the polls that I see, national polls in particular, which is going to be his problem, is he's going to finish at 1% in Iowa and 1% in Hampshire. But in national polls, he actually beats Corey and Beto and sometimes Pete and, and, and Kamala, too. <laughs> so, you know, depending on the poll. And I think that his fundraising apparatus is probably a lot less likely to dry out than, say, Amy Klobuchar or Julian Castro's. Now, Castro is sort of getting that Gillibrand treatment where for a while, every time you saw a one of her social media posts, all the comments were negative, saying they didn't like how she treated Al Franken. Now I all of that, Castro's yeah. posts are saying the same thing about we don't like how he treated Joe Biden. So his fundraising is probably going to take a hit at a time where it really can't afford to. And so I think we're going to start seeing, you know, now he's demonstrated his attack dog qualities. So maybe we're going to start to see him sort of warm up and present himself as a VP. And for some of these candidates, maybe that's a, a, a win that they can walk out being Castro's a name I hear pretty frequently for, for VP, but there are others too. And Booker might be having the same mental process. If he, if he drops out of the race soon, um, you know, he might definitely be sort of positioning himself for a role like that. So for some of these candidates, there might still be a reason to stay in the race, even if it's not to be the nominee. And for others, it might make more sense to get out while you can and run for another office or present yourself as a VP or whatever the case is. So I have a question about Andrew Yang because he, he in some ways is very similar. And I think that your comparison of him to Carly Fiorina was the more accurate one. But in some ways he is the, anti, the anti-Trump the anti and also like he, he is the mere reflection of Trump in some ways in that he has the business background. Uh, he tends to speak directly through the people. He utilizes social media better than I think most, if not all, of the other Democratic, Democratic candidates do. Um, he has that kind of cult-like following, uh, albeit too much. Or he doesn't, and he doesn't wear a tie. Right, and he's Trump the everyman. Just wears one improperly. He's he's but, the. <laughs> they he, both are unconventional true. in their own ways. Uh, and at the same time, he has been very clear that he is not Trump, and that you, you know Donald Trump has you know right. failed. He says he's the opposite of Trump. Right, and, and and I think that he he he's he positions himself as the opposite of Trump, in that. It, not that his goals are polar opposite from Trump's, but that Trump has failed to do what he said what he would do, which is empower the common man, uh, help businesses, help the average person. And I think that, it's you know, basically, it's basically a liberal message with a, a it's a liberal populist. It's a liberal con. The contents of his platform are liberal, but his messaging is 
appealing to conservatives because of exactly that. Yeah, he. I mean, he the harps on individual responsibility. That all sides can like to listen to, even though it's packaged up. It's it's a liberal gift packaged up in conservative gift wrap. I think that's a great way to put it. And also, I mean, he's kind of like he. If there's a candidate that's cool, it's him. Uh, I know that you know in the recent days there have been videos released of. Um, Amy Klobuchar basically hopping up and down like on both her feet at a rally, which it just looked really weird. Like it didn't look presidential, um, and I think that's something that we see in different ways. Uh, but it was just kind of like it just looked like she didn't really know how to dance. And then Kamala Harris actually also uh, had he, she was dancing and she was getting roasted by people who they, they were basically saying they were like, "Man, she looks like she dances like a white person." Um, there are a lot of comments like that underneath the campaign video. And I think that they, they're trying to connect in a lot of ways. And I think that's something, you know, you see Joe Biden do that in his messaging, but he doesn't really, he doesn't like, you, there aren't like videos of him dancing or anything. Like, yeah, I, first of all, I'm not sure if he's like capable of doing that at this point, just because, you know, he, of his advanced age. But there are some candidates that are at least. I don't know about that, but he does run at some of his rallies. Sure. Okay. Um, all right. So, something like that. Jog, or does that, you know, I'm, I'm so youthful jog sort of thing. Right. And I, I, I do, I, you are right though, because he makes himself generally less available. He's, that's another similar with Hillary's campaign. You know, it's like they follow some of the old fashioned channels. You know, you want an interview, you don't just walk up to him, you schedule it at a time. You know, he's not going to go on as many of the shows as everyone else is going to go on whatever they can be agreed to be a guest on. He's gonna, you know, skip this fundraiser or dinner. He's gonna skip this night show or not do this interview because he realizes he doesn't have to. Right. So yeah, he. he but that's at the expense of people okay. saying he's, you know, he's not cool or he's scared or you know he's not available or whatever the criticism is. And, and I think what I was leading into with that was that there are candidates that are trying to make themselves seem more human and more appealable. Uh, just because, you know, there's obviously, like, people hate, you know, just like people hate lawyers, people hate politicians, people that present a face that isn't the one that is their, their you know, that's not reflective of their personality. And, like, you know, you see Kamala Harris do that repeatedly. Um, and you've seen other candidates do it repeatedly. Like, you see Beto, you know, talk about skateboarding around the country. Um, you know, you've seen Cory Booker, uh, you know, be very personal. He you know, talks about his, his own personal life. His, uh, you know, he's a vegan, uh, you know, growing up as a kid. Um, but I think that it, with Andrew Yang, it rings true the most. And part of that might just be that he hasn't mastered the way that politicians speak because he doesn't, he doesn't have that background. So he just kind of like says stuff or tweets stuff out. Um, but I mean, you know, he's like posting out videos of him dunking on like eight foot basketball hoops or, you know, talking about like why the new England Patriots, you know, are going to win the Super Bowl and how it's unfortunate for the rest of America. He actually, right before he gave a campaign speech, in New Hampshire, which is like in the middle of New England, he dissed the Patriots on Twitter the night before, which is how you know that's his actual opinion. Because uh, if he was smart, he wouldn't be bashing the local sports team before giving a rally. Um, but anyway, I, I just I think that he has he I don't think he has infrastructure to last. I don't think he's not somebody who the Democratic Party recognizes as one of them. Like I, he hasn't done much for the party. He hasn't been a lifelong. He hasn't paid his dues in a sense, um, so I, I don't think he'll win for that reason. But I certainly think he's the most interesting of the candidates. I think he's the most real. And, and if if there were a candidate that Joe Biden should be, it, he should be more like Andrew Yang. Like he should still retain a lot of his. Well, you know, he he should be Joe Biden. But if he can make himself more personable 
more able to connect with people. He should take a page out of Andrew Yang's book. Um, so I just wanted to talk about him because well, he doesn't. One thing though about Joe Biden is that, sure, despite the fact that you know he people like him in his government capacities when he is doing his job, and he seems to do an okay job usually when you know he's been vice president, he's been you know a, not only a senator for so long but you know chairman of the foreign relations committee things like that that you know obviously been on the judicial or the judiciary committee for supreme court hearings and you know he was at the center of all of these things but despite the three presidential runs none of them have been particularly good campaigns so i don't think we're gonna see that change not only because you know old habits die hard but joe biden even in 1988 wasn't running a campaign like that or in 2008 so um you know, none of his campaigns have ever really been stellar. Maybe that's the reason why is because that's how people perceive him. Right. Um, all right. So I think we're going to wrap up most, uh, I think our political coverage, basically there are a couple quick things I wanted to talk about that aren't politics based. Um, but do you have anything else that you want to uh, say about politics in general or anything about the democratic candidates that we, uh, that we might've missed? Nope. RIP Bill de Blasio. Uh, yeah. The New York times came with a kill shot. They had like a, the, in, in their front page was a piece it, they made it look like the obituary section and it had like you know bill de blasio's campaign there uh, but the new york post has never like bill de blasio and they never will uh, but I, th- I thought that was particularly humorous um it, you know it, it does say something when the people that you govern uh dislike you as much as the new the people of new york dislike bill de blasio but that's a side note um, all right, so I had a couple things I want to talk about. Uh, I, I don't want to get too far into the NHL just because uh, we'll have time to talk about that later. Um, but I know that the NHL season is starting. Um, there have been a lot of talk about the big winners of the off season, and I think the two names that are thrown around the most are the New York Rangers getting Artemi Panarin, Jacob Truba, Adam Fox, Capo Caco. Uh, Igor Shestyorkin signing Vitaly Kravtsov. I mean, the list just goes on and on and on. Uh, and then the other team is the New Jersey Devils, who have signed... <sighs> Did they sign Taylor Hall yet? Nope. No, okay. Well, we'll see if they get... Uh, if not, RIP Devils. Um, no time in... 20. I don't think it'll happen in 2019. Okay. And so we'll see when he comes back. And then... Uh, but they, uh, they traded for uh, P.K. Subban. Uh, they got Wayne Simmons, who has been a, a Philadelphia Flyer for a long time. Um, they have a couple other. Oh, they got Nikita Gusev. Uh, I think they traded for his rights from uh, from Vegas. Um, and there are a couple other people that I think. Oh yeah, Jack Hughes, a right? Big one. Number, yeah. yeah. Sorry, the number one pick in the draft, Jack Hughes. I, I forgot to mention that. Just a little something. something. Um, so, uh, so I was just wondering. Uh, you know, we we can probably do NHL predictions another time. That's something that we like to do on the podcast a lot. Just predict like sports and politics and things. But uh, who do you think who do you think uh, ends up with more wins this year, the Devils or the Rangers? First, I just want to rub one other thing in before I give. I will answer the question. I right, go, an for go for it. Go for it. You know, everyone likes to say it is just preseason, and that it is. But I actually wow. just have to I, okay. notice today <laughs> that um, the scoring leader. I mean, it's a tie in both categories. There are several people with the same goal total, but. Um, Jack Hughes and Austin Matthews are the two I saw lead in goal scoring. And Sammy Votnin actually leads in assists. So 
just something that was cool that I, I didn't really realize because, you know, it's obviously the, the rosters are so fluid in preseason. But um, fitting if this sticks. But between those two teams, which I do agree that among some others had probably, you know, the top few off seasons, I, you know, a lot of people would also mention Colorado and Florida. True, true. Some well, of those. Florida could have well. on, on the converse that had awful off seasons and some like Winnipeg is just getting worse and worse. Um, <laughs> their star <laughs> players playing video games in Europe. Yes. And their second up and comer is also overseas. So yeah, and their their top <laughs> defensemen not... may retire. This is it's yeah. just bad for them. Yeah, they're these the Canadian teams are really it's really unfortunate to see what's happening in you know, Ottawa, Winnipeg, Edmonton, and Vancouver are all... Vancouver is turning it around, but the others are just... It's so it's so unfortunate to see how... I, I don't feel bad for them. I, um, I, I, I've spent years, man, I, the Montreal and Toronto killing everybody. Uh, I, I don't want to, you know... Those are the two that still seem decent, so unfortunately... Uh, you know, I look, I, 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 I'm not rooting for... I really, I, I dislike most of the teams in the East, but... I, I, I take consolation knowing that neither the the Leafs or the the Canadians will win the East. Uh, we just have to hope it's not the 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 Capitals or the or the uh, the Penguins. Um, but yeah, okay, sorry, I, I I cut you off there. Go ahead. To an- to give you the answer that you were looking for, and I'm sure the answer that you wanted, uh, I think it will be the Devils. And I see and I wow. see that understanding that if you know if you put that a, into a poll with everyone who who follows the NHL, I think the Rangers would probably win the poll. I think that they are the more conventional choice between the two, even though I'm not sure that it's for certain that they, you know, had a better offseason. I think both offseasons were decent enough that you could make an argument either way. And for, I think, I guess, a lot of the people who are predicting the Rangers over the Devils, even if you say that, you know, the summer acquisitions are even, the Rangers ended up with a few more points than the Devils did. Obviously, look at the draft, you know, last year. So by default, many people might assume that they had the better core already, you know, that they're adding to, whereas the Devils are coming from further behind. Although... They added similar. But, you know, last season had a lot of its other quirks that people aren't paying attention to. We didn't have Taylor Hall in our lineup for more than half the season, the league MVP. You know, some other players didn't step up. And, of course, by the second half, half the team was injured for the rest of the time where, you know, Kevin Rooney played 41 NHL games. You were starting a, a, a minor league team. And also Corey Schneider was out, and when he finally came back, he couldn't win a game. So we had two backup goaltenders splitting time. Oh, yeah, I Blackwood. Mackenzie Blackwood, back. the legend, coming coming out, out of Blackwood nowhere. Never is, heard of the guy before. Right. He yeah. is now the bona fide backup, and... Obviously, Corey Schneider, even if he does turn around, which, by the way, he's been, one, if not the, one of the most impressive Devils this preseason. He's been fantastic. But, you know, obviously, if Mackenzie Blackwood can be a very effective backup, I think over time, it, you know, he will see an increase in the games that he plays. And then, you know, if that sticks, then he probably could be the successor to but so I have I have you on record saying that you think the Devils will do. be better. All right, I've locked it in. Um, I, I will just just to be fair because I I will give a prediction. If they can stay healthy, of course, that's always the asterisk. All right, you don't get the you know that that that's true of every team every year in every sport. Yeah, um, it is true of every team, but then I, yeah, I'm, I'm just you know. I, I will I will I will also stick stick my neck out 
and just say it's going to be the Rangers. Um, who knows? I know that I almost uh, ended up getting you a sweatshirt last year, but I didn't because of like tiebreaker points or something. Um, because Columbus had one more shootout or something. <laughs> now Columbus is being universally regarded as the eighth team in the Metro. So yeah, they're bad. But changed. yeah, you know, I I, I got we got to see this Flyers kid, this goalie, the first rounder, uh, Carter Hart, because I keep hearing about him and I, I I thought he was some scrub and then I because I forgot. That, you know, the draft happened over the summer. Many people are forgetting, too, because the two rookie goalies last year that got all the attention were Carter Hart and Jordan Bennington. Obviously, right. they both deserved that attention. But the next, statistically speaking, the next brightest standout was Mackenzie Blackwood. Also, Bennington got more, uh, um, obviously, more natural attention because he won the Stanley Cup for his team. So right. it doesn't necessarily mean that he had um, you know, he only played really the, the second half of the season, which is why he was not a realistic choice for the Calder. Look, you know, I, I, I am a Mackenzie Blackwood fan. I'm just, I'm just going to say there are devils that I really, really dislike. Uh, and there are devils that I will probably grow to dislike as they spend the next like 10 years, uh, scoring goals on us. There are two in particular I'm thinking of when I say that both of whom happen to be number one picks the last two years, but, uh, but I do like Blackwood. So I do, I do want to transition away. I have one one last topic uh, to talk about. We're running about 45 minutes, so uh, not bad, not bad on timing. Uh, so this is a, a, an article that my alerts sent me from Yahoo, and it is entitled, Pumpkin Spice, Autumn Treat or Seasonal Scourge? So I would like your take on pumpkin spice beverages and products. Um, I will just say personally... There are like two things that are pumpkin spice flavored that I like, and I can't remember what they are right now. Um, I just know that there are like a couple things that flavors I, I really don't like. It. I don't like pumpkin pie. Uh, you know what it is? I like pumpkin muffins. That's it. Um, but I was wondering what your take on it was. Is it is it a seasonal scourge, or is it an autumn treat? You're talking to someone right now who actually has a plug-in air freshener scented like pumpkin. Um, so my opinion is absolutely positively that it's an autumn treat. But my, and for me, it starts probably like a month before autumn. So that's where I become more unpopular in my opinion. But You're one of those people. I like pumpkin, anything to do with pumpkin, the scent, the taste, um, or, you know, whatever, just the, like the look, the decorations and everything about it. The only concern that I have is that uh, my favorite, well, what used to be like my favorite pumpkin treat, I guess, would be the pumpkin flavored coffees that Starbucks and Duncan has. But unfortunately, they're not vegan. So, Ooh. like Cory Booker, we're setting those out. But, you know, there are ways to work around it, like there is anything. But overall, you know, I love everything pumpkin, and I'm very, very happy that we're finally in this season. Like any true vegan, you had to work in that you were vegan over the course of a discussion. Um, of course, I made it what forty five minutes. Ninety five percent of the vegans out there. I I will say yeah, that is true, and I, I I should probably add at this point that I am I I'm what they would call a pesco vegetarian, which I I consider myself a vegetarian because I don't actually consume seafood that much. Uh, it's on very rare occasions, but technically I, I'm one of those. So we are uh, we are together and not getting our protein according to people who eat meat. Um, 
but uh, yeah, so I think that's everything I had. Uh, we'll probably we'll have you on in the future. I know that you wanted to have a discussion about the constitutional principles behind the Second Amendment and gun control because I think that's very interesting and we have very different opinions on that. Um, and there will be other things to come up. We'll probably do, you know, at least, I don't know if it'll be a whole podcast, but talk about the NHL, uh, just cause I think we're going to have a really, really crazy season this year. Um, and, uh, I don't know, maybe, maybe I can't think of anything, but I'm sure things will come up. It'll probably be politics, sports, and, uh, and the occasional, uh, political slash legal slash cultural issue. Um. But any, anything else you wanted to uh, to say before we sign off for this episode? Was pumpkin the cultural issue of this episode? It was. In fact, right. while climate change may be the most devastating threat, I consider pumpkin spice the the second most. Um, so it could it simply could not go unspoken, uh, untalked about. But uh, yeah, anything? Any? Because I'm I'm I think I'm tapped out for now. Likewise, I think we covered a lot of bases. All right. So uh, that'll be it for this uh, this episode of the Road Not Taken podcast. Um, we are currently up on SoundCloud. We're also up on Spotify. And if we can get past the moderators of Apple Podcast Connect who keep insisting that this is just a test run. Um, yeah, come I... on, Apple. I've been on here twice. Let's get it going. Come on. And if I, if I can get on, hopefully we'll also be on iTunes, which will be huge because they're, the uh, they're the largest by far. Um, you know, platform for podcasts. So uh, keep out, keep a lookout for us uh, on there. And then uh, we'll be back uh, with a few more episodes and a few more special guests in the future. 